Democracy Dies in Darkness. Today we're going to shine a light on some of those shadowy figures lurking in the darkness, determined to destroy democracy. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. So said the great Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis. And in the same vein, in 2017, at the start of the Trump era, the Washington Post could see what was coming and adopted Democracy Dies in Darkness as its official slogan. What makes democracy so universally attractive is that is open the very antithesis of government in secret. Democracy is self-government. In direct contrast to dictatorships, the people are the authors of our own laws. The uh, the aspiration underpinning our imperfect form of government is that people most affected by decisions, at least in theory, have the opportunity to participate in making those decisions. The old story is that when asked at the conclusion of the Constitutional Convention what kind of government the founders created, Ben Franklin said, of course, he said, a republic if you can keep it. That word if has never been so relevant and applicable as it is today. The powers determined to replace our republican form of government with the religious nationalism have been hard at work for a number of years, and democracy has never been in as much peril as it is today. Unlike those of us who favor democracy, the plotters of this scheme thrive in darkness and secrecy. They realize that the electoral process is by nature too open, too vulnerable to scrutiny, too unpredictable, so alternatives to mere electoral participation have been employed and they have yielded much success, like going through the courts, packing them. And while the attention has focused on the obvious blustering enemies of democracy, people like Trump and his Putin-loving democracy-hating minions, what's been going on outside of public scrutiny is yet another potentially powerful assault on democracy, maybe the most powerful. Our guest today, Ann Nelson, has a new piece up on the New Republic, which lifts some of the rocks under which these anti-democracy people hide. It's titled, 10 People You've Never Heard Of Who Are Destroying Democracy. They're sowing disruption and disinformation and have their eyes on 2024. And Nelson, thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Sure, thank you, Bert. Ann Nelson is an award-winning author who has published extensive works on the subjects of dictatorship and opposition movements. You can see her currently featured in the PBS series The Rise of the Nazis, Dictators at War. Her most recent book brought her closer to home, Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. That sheds light on the secret of Council for National Policy, a coordinating body of Christian theocrats and fossil fuel interests that has long been laboring to take over the country for the past 40 years with no small degree of success. Nelson is a native of Oklahoma. She taught at Columbia University for over two decades and currently writes and lectures on the defense of democracy. Well, uh, first off, I had not heard of the Council for National Policy. What a uh, neutral-sounding name. What is that in the context of our discussion today? 
Well, uh, yeah, it's the subject of my book, Shadow Network, and it is an organization that was formed in 1981 after a group of fundamentalist uh, Christian leaders, many of them televangelists, got behind Ronald Reagan and wanted to capitalize on his victory. And what you had was one group who were all about pushing um, what I would call white Christian fundamentalist values, which had their roots in some elements of racism and extended to anti-LGBT positions. And they found common ground with fossil fuel interests and other people involved in big business who wanted to eliminate taxes for themselves to the extent possible and eliminate any kind of regulations, starting with environmental uh, regulations, but also labor safety, food safety, anything that cut into their profits. And because these are difficult ideas to sell to the electorate Mm. on face value, they started looking for ways to game the system. Ways to Game the System. Yes, that's uh, written about uh, a wonderful book, uh, which you've probably read, and I've had her on the show, uh, about uh, the... uh, the power, the power worshippers. Power worshippers. Yes, yes. Catherine Stewart. Yes, uh, just terrific uh, book. Uh, yeah, really, really good book, and uh, just very important. And it fits in. It, it's there's a lot going on. How they work around the democratic process to uh, in, install their form of uh, theocracy, and. Democracy has not always been popular with every interest, especially those people who want to keep their money. (laughs) It's always had its detractors. The combination or perhaps intersection of powers in this moment adds up to kind of a unique threat, newish religious nationalists and the old oligarchs. We Americans are used to health reductions like the 10 most to clarify and simplify often complex challenges. It is it is useful to, to put that on paper. And it must have been interesting research for you to come up with the list we're about to uncover. And uh, you say there are 10, but there could have been an even dozen. How did you get on this project? Oh, I could have, I could have come up with 50. I mean, <laughs> but magazines have a limitation of space. <laughs> ah, yes. They only buy so much ink. How did you get on this project? What motivated you? Well, this project goes back a ways. Uh, When I was visiting family in Oklahoma some years ago, I turned on the radio as I was driving to Walmart and found this this so-called religious radio station that was broadcasting uh, very, very misleading and false information about John Kerry when he was running for president. And it puzzled me on several counts um, so, so I, it, and of course, you know, if it was actually a religious broadcast, it wasn't supposed to be in, involved in campaign activity, mm-hmm. according to tax law. So I, I tucked it away in the back of my mind. And then, uh, as, as, uh, Trump emerged onto the national stage, I started looking into that radio station. I learned it was part of a radio network. I learned that there were at least three such networks that were involved in this kind of information, which was uh, highly political, highly misleading, and draped in religious garb. 
and that the owners of these networks were very were in leadership positions with the Council for National Policy. So, uh, you know, I've, I've done investigative journalism uh, over the course of my career, and it's, it's uh, you know, what I call collecting bits of, of, of information and then seeing the picture that emerges. And I was quite surprised, actually, because initially I thought, all right, I'm in a small town in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. This is just a local phenomenon, and it's, it's anecdotal. But then when I saw the national impact of this movement, it was it was truly stunning. And initially, I will say, when my book first came out in 2019, I think people didn't believe me. You know, there's a lot of reaction about, oh yeah, this group is there, but you know, do they really matter? And then when so many of the leaders of these this organization and the organizations who are part of it uh, emerged uh, in the in, in in the front uh, of the January 6th events. Mm. That's when when the New York Times and the Washington Post and, and other publications started to take take notice. Uh, so what looks well, maybe is designed to look like just local stuff, you know, local church organizations is really uh, very wisely connected to one another and uh, and coordinated. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily look that way. And people are aware of Fox Network. But they're less aware of, of the Sinclair Network, which is basically doing more of the – they're to the right of Fox, but they they get in to control local radio stations, and they have their own script that each particular newsreader must read. So it, it's not small, and obviously the, the rise of Trump uh, increased its danger to uh, America and the world. Well, on this list – among those whose radar has been attuned to such things, I've noticed something called Hillsdale College. It's it's been pretty much on, on everyone's list of questionable uh, sources. Its president is Larry Aaron. He's he's on your top ten list. Who is he, and what is this institution up to? I get a lot of emails from them. Hillsdale College. Oh well, they're very active, and yeah, it's it's Larry Arn, from Pocahontas, Arkansas, and the previous president of Hillsdale College uh, was was also very active with the Council for National Policy, but he got caught up in a very uh, intense scandal involving an alleged affair with his daughter-in-law who took a gun from his cabinet and shot herself. Oh, geez. So he disappeared from public view, and Larry Arn took his place. Hillsdale College is in western Michigan, and it is very closely tied in with the DeVos family, as in Betsy DeVos. Uh-huh. Yes. And so so they have become kind of the academic or or quasi-academic front organization for a lot of the, I was going to say educational policies, but what they actually are are anti-educational policies. Because Betsy DeVos, whose brother Eric Prince attended Hillsdale, um, has devoted much of her career to, to trying to find ways to take money away from public schools and direct it to public funds, to religious schools, homeschooling, et cetera. 
she's been an ardent enemy of of the teachers unions. And in fact, in in my home state uh, of Oklahoma, when educational funding has been in deep crisis for years, a group of public school teachers uh, went to run for the state legislature to try to influence funding. Mm -hmm. And she spent several hundred thousand dollars opposing them in Oklahoma alone. Mm. I have not been able to track every state in which she's been spending money to oppose public school teachers, unions, and other initiatives. So Hillsdale positions itself as a school that that uh, is supposed to be liberal arts, and it supposedly defends uh, Judeo-Christian values. Uh, but again, you can see its activity right now in the state of Tennessee, where the governor invited them to come in and bring their curriculum to to launch some 50 charter schools. And if you go to the curriculum it, of Hillsdale College, it is based on the 1776 project that Trump started with Larry Arne as a chairman to oppose the 1619 project, mm-hmm. which brought education about the history of slavery and the history of race relations and the civil rights movement to the forefront of, of public school education. And the 1776 project pushes back against that and uses texts and concepts that really suggest that, that the founders of the United States uh, achieved a high degree of perfection. <laughs> And if there were any warts, we're certainly not going to see them. <laughs> well, what is uh, what, what's Hillsdale College and well, Betsy DeVos? I mean, they, they want to destroy public education because, uh, and so many uh, philosophers have said something like uh, democracy can only exist when there's an educated public, and uh, authoritarians know you got to have uneducated people. Trump himself said he loved uneducated people. So Hillsdale College is a relatively small college in Western Michigan, you say. So what is, what's their, what are they trying to do? And, and Larry Arn, what's his uh, influence on this? And how how is it that he made your top ten list? Well, he's been uh, uh, somebody who's been shaping a whole area of their public outreach. So Hillsdale College, for decades, has published a journal called Imprimis, uh, and it's got millions of subscribers, most of whom never ask for it, most of whom don't pay for it. Um, I, I had previously seen them claiming, I believe, four million subscribers, and now I, they, I think they're up to six. So this, rather than being a journal that that reflects the most advanced academic thinking around uh, is very ideological. It's run pieces by, uh, well, for example, Scott Pruitt, uh-huh. who was the uh, head of the EPA and ran the most anti-environmental policies this country has seen since uh, in memory. And I believe he's um, running for uh, either Congress or Senate. He's he's been busy. Um, so, so yeah, just just it's it's a one-sided array of conservative uh, voices, which is not what you want in a proper academic journal. 
Um, so that's one area uh, that they're, they they have a, also a, a foothold in Washington in something called the Kirby Center, mm. and that is Hillsdale College's uh, center. It's it's in a four story building not far from Capitol Hill, one of those old brown uh, brownstone buildings uh-huh. in Washington, right across the street from their partner, the Heritage uh, Foundation. They work closely together. And so Hillsdale's Kirby Center is a place where conservative staff members from the Hill can come and network and take leadership training. They have a radio studio on the fourth floor. And this is where the voices of the right can come and have their Washington radio programs recorded. Uh, so it's, it's really a kind of academic nerve center for for this organization. Now, beyond that, they've been very active in promoting their online education. And again, uh, if you look at the titles of their courses and the content, uh, you know, it will be courses that are talking about why the New Deal failed, right? Now, this is not the uh, thinking of, of the mainstream <laughs> academic historians. Um, and it certainly is is kind of a you know you look at Franklin Roosevelt in, in the United States and the Depression and uh, to just you know call the New Deal a failure is a, a, a very uh, inaccurate unusual perspective <laughs> unusual yeah it's inaccurate but the, but the the right wing uh, formerly conservatives have they've been they've been trying to destroy the the uh, New Deal ever since it happened and they're. They're still at it and now pushing uh, something even further to the right, you know, lacking uh, uneducated people actually trying to do that so that it can. Or miseducate. Miseducate, yes. So they're pushing out these online courses and uh, they're free. So you have all of these people who may have a good hearted uh, intention Mm. to learn about the Constitution and they're going to get the most conservative, original as possible interpretation of the Constitution. Uh, they may want to learn about the Bible. There are a lot of you know, religious courses. So again, it's, it's, it's going to be in that vein. And then they can, they can learn about how uh, Franklin Roosevelt was a, an utter disaster. Mm-hmm. And what that adds up to is not the object of education as, as I've known it, which is to open people's minds. It's, it's, it's more uh, pulling them into a political echo chamber yeah. with with academic window dressing. For those who may have just tuned in, as Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with Ann Nelson, who has a new article in uh, the New Republic titled 10 People You've Never Heard Of Who Are Destroying Democracy. And her most recent book is Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. Um, and those of us who favor democracy favor the free flow of ideas. And where there used to be just three networks, the, inter- uh, the Internet has, has freed up the old parameters. They're no longer the boundaries. Everyone knows Fox, which boldly claims to be a news channel, which is incredible. And that has certainly influenced and pushed American politics to the right. You say... The radical right has been assiduously constructing a parallel media system in recent decades. So tell us, please, about your second of the ten in the gallery, Joe Seals. What is his special role? 
Yeah, he uh, started a network, which is kind of being, uh, well, I call it a C-SPAN for Donald Trump exclusively. <laughs> so, so pretty much, you know, at times when the actual news organizations and the networks have been trying to uh, limit Donald Trump from using them as an uncurated platform, uh, this organization has come in and said, yes, we will offer ourselves to Donald Trump as an uncurated platform. So uh, that means that, um, for example, when Trump on January 6th made his call for, for the protesters to march on the Capitol, um, you could tune into Facebook and see a live stream of this, which, which of course, many of the followers did. Uh, so one thing, you know, you mentioned earlier that uh, I'm on the PBS series Rise of the Nazis, Dictators at War, and that's based on my book Red Orchestra. And something that fascinated me in writing about the Nazi period was the way that Germany had a very sophisticated uh, press over the 1920s and 30s, going into the 30s. And Hitler's Minister of Propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, mm -hmm. realized that the newspaper editors would critique Hitler's speeches, which was a disadvantage because they were so filled with hatred and fallacies and so on. But if he went straight to the radio and had the speeches delivered to the Germans uh, without any commentary, that the propaganda worked much better. So initially, mm -hmm. Trump figured out that he could use Twitter in this way. He could, he could deliver his message as fallacious or bombastic as it might be directly to his followers on Twitter. Well, Twitter started imposing limits the way the networks did. So you have not only SEAL's uh, video platform, but you have many others that have come in and tried to serve this purpose of uh, being a conduit, not just for Trump, but for these organizations. And it's been, you know, really hard to chase them because they are, they're proliferating mm. so quickly. There's OANN, uh, there's video on this new platform, Rumble. Um, so, so, you know, for us media scholars, it, it's what's what they call whack-a-mole. As soon as you figure yeah. one of them out, five more appear. And the the other side, the, the right, uses the phrase uh, freedom of speech, and they've manipulated that to uh, suggest that, uh, well, if they can't put out their propaganda without any restrictions whatsoever, then uh, it's not really freedom of speech that we're clamping down on, on their democratic rights. It's an interesting uh, way to put it, and some people are buying it, unfortunately. Well, and this whole uh, talk about freedom of speech is absolutely hypocritical. One of the organizations that is very prominent with the Council for National Policy and whom I mentioned in the New Republic piece is the Leadership Institute, uh, run by Morton Blackwell. And he's working in partnership with Charlie Kirk of Turning Point USA. And together, they put out these websites uh, basically calling for, for, you know, attacking professors whom they deem 
liberal. And so not only do they have their professor watch list, which is as, as, as contrary watch list, how you know, that's as contrary to free speech as you can be. But they've also set up an independent website, which is to critique school boards. Mm. They are doing that, and that's the uh, one of the latest uh, uh, rounds of the uh, the culture war, which Democrats are not uh, playing at all, which uh, concerns me greatly. It's, it's like we've given that up to the to the right, the culture war thing. When we have a side. well, that's because I don't see it as a real war. A war has has two sides, and this is a matter of one side seeing what they think is a vulnerability in the entire system and creating uh, campaigns based on falsehoods. The critical race theory is the prime example because, you know, we can explain till we're blue in the face that critical race theory is not what they say it is, that it's not something that's used in, in elementary schools. They don't care because they find these hot button terms and they rouse people to a kind of destructive frenzy and use this cynically as an organizing mechanism. Mm. So if you try to talk about common sense and say, well, this is what's actually being taught in the schools, it falls on deaf ears because it's too rational. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's the fear, you know, and and the something that connects. And, well, it's also a matter of, of, of stoking anger. Yeah. And that has been so destructive to our society because, you know, if, every school district has problems, of course. Oh, yeah. That's 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 human. But you don't solve problems by driving people to a frenzy and having them attack each other. That's not problem solving. <laughs> well, I they kind of like causing problems, I think, and exacerbating them. It's creating problems. Yes. But we're, you know, and and look, I mean, our schools desperately need more funding. We need to pay our teachers more. We have all kinds of problems we need to solve. And to have people running around with these manufactured grievances just means that the actual problems never get addressed. Yep. Well, talk about adding to problems. Uh, There's any, any site that has 20 million or claims to have 20 million monthly readers has to be paid attention to. There's, that's something called a Daily Caller. What is its mission? And who is Neil Patel? He's also on your list. Yeah, well, he's a longtime member of the Council for National Policy. And so the Daily Caller was founded some years ago with funding from another Council for National Policy member uh, named Foster Fries, who has since died. Uh, but Patel and and uh, Tucker Carlson founded it. Now, uh, Carlson has uh, just in the last couple of years stepped away from it. But the Daily Caller is a, another media platform that has been popular and it is used to really transmit, um, well, promote promote their causes and their positions. And in a lot of ways, again, it's something that often masquerades as news, but it is news. Well, now, I taught at the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism for, for years. And, you know, for a proper news story, you need to have more than one source. You need to consider different uh, angles of a question. Uh, you, you need to check your facts. 
And they don't really subscribe to any of this. But the problem is that I think their public thinks that you can have a television show if you get a news desk and some pirates. So they do that and you know, put on the suit and tie and off we go. So one of their correspondents, for example, uh, has been Ginny Thomas, Justice Clarence Thomas's wife, uh-huh. where she introduces all kinds of right wing uh, positions as a quote unquote correspondent. And she interviews fellow members of the Council for National Policy. She's a member of, of the council and she's also on their um, their political action board. So she's been quite active. So the whole cross-promotion idea is intrinsic to this whole operation. Mm. So she'll interview Charlie Kirk from Turning Point USA, their, their student movement, who works with Morton Blackwell on training and, and recruiting uh, young, young activists. And she'll inter- so so here we go round and round in a circle with the cross promotion, cross funding, yeah. etc. It works like a machine, a, a pretty effective machine. Yes, it does. They're very effective. They can be very effective and uh, much more efficient. I think, uh, as we've seen in the past, uh, people tending toward the uh, fascistic side are often very efficient. Efficient is part of uh, <laughs> their appeal, perhaps. And Democrats, not so much. Uh, an old professor of mine uh, put it, politics and protest, both are necessary. Neither is sufficient. People on the streets may be old-fashioned, but it remains an effective component in bringing political change. So in that light, tell us about Jenny Beth Martin, another one I'd never heard of. W- why did she say, we're all truckers now? What's her, what's her shtick? What, is, what unique role does she play? Yeah, uh, she's very interesting. Um, not even 15 years ago, she was basically uh, an unemployed housewife, semi-employed housewife who had uh, major money problems. And she was a co-founder of the Tea Party Patriots, uh, which had some some backing from the Koch brothers. And so so there was this whole, uh, you know, you talk about protest. Uh, the Tea Party movement was what we call, you know, not a grassroots movement, but an astroturf movement, where people would come and launch these disruptive activities on a local level. And so what you see now with school boards is what they were doing with town halls in, in different states. So she was involved with this from the beginning and has become a very active member of the Council for National Policy. And uh, she has, every once in a while, she'll appear um, in some Trump-related context as a concerned mother, right, without further identification. And then you kind of scratch the surface and say, yeah, it's this woman running a, a fairly major astroturf operation and working hand in glove with the Council for National Policy. So uh, there's another figure on my Mm -hmm. list, Simone Gold, a doctor who has promoted various really dangerous hoaxes around COVID response, Mm. including the idea that hydroxychloroquine is a cure. It is not a cure. And people have died because they thought it was. 
But when the Council for National Policy wanted to help Trump with a premature reopening of the economy for the benefit of his campaign, Jenny Beth Martin organized an event for Simone Gold uh, in Washington where she appeared with a group of white-coated so-called frontline doctors pushing these these false claims about COVID and saying people didn't need to worry about COVID. This mm-hmm. was this was at the height of the epidemic um, and before vaccines existed. And it was it was kind of horrific on several counts because one of them was that people would 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 change their behavior believing that hydroxychloroquine was a cure. So then if they got COVID and it didn't cure them, they were in, in severe danger and, and many died. On the, on the other hand, you also have people with autoimmune diseases like lupus who desperately needed hydroxychloroquine, which is a prescribed treatment for yeah. lupus and autoimmune diseases. And the shortages meant that they couldn't get their hands on their prescriptions. And they suffered that as a result. So you had Simone Gold as the uh, so-called voice of medicine. Mm-hmm. And she, by the way, she's moved on to saying that ivermectin is a cure for COVID. No, of course. It is not. It is a, it, I mean, it's, it's a cure if you've got worms or other parasites. It right. is not a cure for, for COVID. <laughs> And she's also been discouraging people from vaccinations. You so know, to, to politicize really dangerous. To, to politicize the public health, to to make it so that people die, the callousness is just—it's amazing that they could do that. But they're putting their their politics, their uh, something other than democracy, ahead of uh, the common good, which just. Who'd have ever thunk it would be like this? If you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Ann Nelson, professor, who... Uh, uh, no, I'm, no, I'm not. I'm a, I'm a research scholar. Research scholar. Now, okay. former professor. She's written in uh, The New Republic, 10 people you've never heard of who are destroying democracy. Written a whole bunch of books, including Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the secret hub of the radical right. And we're talking about the various people we haven't heard of who are behind the scenes. Don't open that curtain uh, to see. That's exactly what we're doing. We're looking behind the curtain. And it seems that... I just would like to add that as of January 6th, you had this array of people uh, instigating the events and in various cases present. So there were tweets uh, where Ginny Thomas was encouraging her followers to go to the protest. And you had Charlie Kirk stating that his organization was sending busloads of protesters to January 6th. You had Jenny Beth Martin and Simone Gold both present and listed as, as speakers. Now, I, you know, the, the disruption meant that it doesn't appear that they were on the speakers program, programs. But what this all indicates is that there was a very, very high involvement of, <laughs> when you have this many members who are in central positions, uh, it, it suggests that the Council for National Policy as a whole uh, was highly informed about the events 
in advance. And I would say that in, when we see Jamie Raskin's uh, pronouncements coming out and the January 6th panel coming out of the House of Representatives, you should stay tuned for the mention of these names. Yes, I was wondering about that because we had, I hadn't heard of them before. And uh, one wonders what the January 6th committee is doing and what uh, uh, the attorney general is going to do. Uh, we, we have to trust, maybe, be patient, maybe. I don't know. I do, I do kind of worry. But uh, one, one thing the right learned from the successes of the Tea Party in 2009 and 10 was that it was something that Democrats have yet to figure out, and that is culturing, cultivating the grassroots to develop leaders. So tell us in that context about Morton Blackwell and the advantage his group has nurtured relative to long-term development, not waiting for election seasons, as Democrats always do. Yeah, uh, Martin Blackwell was one of the grand old men of the Council for National Policy. And he uh, worked along with a, a strategist named Paul Weirich. Oh, yes. And uh. yeah, well, people of a certain age know that name. <laughs> Um, and another named Richard Vigory. So they they divided up the tasks, and and Weirich kind of worked on a high level in terms of devising an architecture for this movement and using the Council for National Policy as one of his instruments. And if you look at Weirich's real philosophy, it's pretty terrifying. It, It really is, because... He, you know, there's there's video of him on YouTube saying we don't want everyone to vote. That's you know the last thing you want is a universal get out the vote plan. So so already in in the in the roots of this movement, there's the idea that you energize certain voters and you suppress other parts of the electorate. Right. And you see those voter suppression movements, you know, happening on a state level all over the country. So. Vigory was the man who basically invented the use of direct mail in political campaigns after the Goldwater campaign. And so he's he's been a kind of marketing guru. So Blackwell uh, saw himself as someone who could mastermind the recruitment and training of the masses. And he founded the Leadership Institute. It's in Arlington, Virginia. But... Um, it really has a national reach. And so they have these these workshops, which are basically free, mm. and they rec- recruit and uh, I would say radicalize and then train candidates and activists and campaign workers across the country. Now, when I wrote the book, uh, they were claiming to have trained over 200,000 people. And if you think about that on a national scale, it's, it's extensive. And I don't have a number for after that. Um, but I have spent some time looking at their courses. And you have th- them training people on a county level, especially in battleground states and battleground districts. Uh, in things like the use of data, in speech writing, in digital communications. This is highly technical material. And so uh, they, the other uh, you know, secret power they have 
is that they go in well in advance of uh-huh. campaigns. Uh-huh. So uh, last winter, I was looking at Texas because uh, there are five districts that the Republicans have targeted for the House elections. 18 months before the elections, they're already doing county-level training in 40 or 50 counties in Texas alone, right? Yeah. And Democrats Whereas, are not doing no, that. Democrats are Demo- not doing that, I don't think. Go ahead. Yeah, Democrats tend to go in three weeks before and yeah. say, all right, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's have you know, a morning workshop and, and put you out on the street. And, well, I mean, you can just see the results. Yeah. The other thing that happens is that the Leadership Institute has has the ability to train and network all of these other organizations connected to the Council for National Policy. So in the book, I've got a case study, which is the Claire McCaskill campaign in Missouri. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, when you're running a political campaign, she's running for re-election to the Senate. So you have these certain elements. You have television ads. You have... Uh, you might have radio ads, you might have newspaper coverage, and the, the, the gold ticket to an election is, is the canvassing. The person that shows up at the door yes. and asks you to vote for their candidate and Absolutely. leaves behind a piece of paper, yes. and then if you have follow-up, that's bonus. You know, if, you're, if you have a real person texting you on election day and telling you where to go vote. So you had the Democrats who have spent a disproportionate amount of their budget on ineffectual television ads, throw mud at the at the wall because you don't know whether people watching television are going to vote or not, and who they're going to vote for. And you've got the Republicans who do what they do, and then you have this whole other third, uh, third, third stream, where the Susan B. Anthony list, run by a member of the Council for National Policy, did a huge number of phone calls, and a huge number of door-to-door visits, as did the National Rifle Association, mm. another CNP partner. So you have millions, literally millions, of voter contacts from these organizations that the Democrats who are watching the Republicans aren't even aware of. And, of course, the, the, the passion, you know, if, if you're sort of out of power and, and wanting to gain power, that that's more passionate than well, defending democracy. I mean, how is? I'm not even sure people will get motivated by that. We have a democracy, but uh, it it doesn't motivate people nearly as much. And it used to be the case that there were organizations, labor organizations, and other uh, similar organizations that could serve as a a place from which there could be a movement which was there on the ground uh, that Democrats could tap into. But it seems like the Republicans got this. Democrats, not so much anymore. And uh, you mentioned uh, Joseph Goebbels before. He, of course, advised his boss to say of the other what is true about yourself. The American version of Trump's big lie that the election was stolen. As those forces were busily harassing neutral vote counters and doing their best to create votes that were not there, that's, they claimed that's what Democrats were doing. Cleta Mitchell, another unknown player, carved out a place for herself in disrupting and raising public doubts about the integrity of our elections. Her work uh, to disrupt did not end with the 2020 election. Tell us about the role she plays. Yeah, um, she is a fellow Oklahoman. 
I'm afraid. Sorry. Uh, I know. I know. <laughs> I mean, between her and Scott Pruitt, and it's like, there's, there's a long list. Um, she's an attorney, and she's really mastered a lot of the elements of, of election law that can be manipulated to achieve certain ends. So uh, she has been involved. Well, first of all, uh, she was very, her, her, she had a moment of renown uh, when she was advising Donald Trump on the call to Brad Raffensperger, mm. who was mm-hmm. the Secretary of State for Georgia, in which Donald Trump asked Raffensperger to find uh, 11,000 votes uh, that would swing the election in his favor. And so Cleta Mitchell was on that call. Uh, advising Trump. So she was also showing up in the whole process of the Eastman memo, which was looking for other ways that Trump could manage to claim victory through illegitimate means. She's been active on a state level in terms of looking at ways that local election law can be addressed. And the thing to know about the Council for National Policy in general is that they always have plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D. And so, you know, right now, it's not that they've given up. It's just that they've gone down through the alphabet and they're probably around plans L and NOP by now. But the earlier ones, uh, well, some of them worked reasonably well. Uh, And again, for those who just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It is a heavy lift. We need everybody involved in it. Our guest today is Ann Nelson. Got an article in the New Republic. Ten people you've never heard of who are destroying democracy. And as a uh, former uh, state senator myself, I, I can tell you about something you talk about called ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Committee. Uh, the council. Council, rather, yes. <laughs> Thank you. The right has learned well the political changes at the federal level often follow changes that are made at the state level. Uh, but I, I had direct contact with Alec from time to time. Tell us about Lisa Nelson and Richard Graber and what their independent state legislature initiative is about and uh, what they're doing with regard to the upcoming 2024 state uh, legislative elections and uh, what they're trying to do reg- to, to make happen regardless of the popular vote. Well, Lisa Nelson is uh, runs the American Legislative Exchange Council, as you say. And what that organization has done for many, many years is bring together uh, state legislators with uh, representatives of corporations. And they have a, uh, basically a junket experience where they go to luxurious settings and the, basically, the corporate interests, uh, what they do is tantamount to writing bills and giving them to the state legislators to pass. Yes. And so it's, it's, it's called you know, a bill mill. And the idea is that once they pass in one state successfully, then the legislation can be filtered out to other states. Mm-hmm. 
and they worked on this basis on many, many issues. And I would, I would opine that in, in many, if not most cases, these bills are contrary to the public interest <laughs> and often contrary to, to the public opinion in the states. So it is a problem. And you have Richard Graber, who is the head of the Bradley Foundation, um, based in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And again, this organization has been involved in funding initiatives, uh, for example, right to work laws. They've, uh-huh, they've been yes. supporting those. And of course, right to work laws are ways of crippling labor unions, which have traditionally acted in support of Democratic candidates. And you have two states that were basically uh, regarded as dependable Democratic states, uh, Wisconsin and Michigan, because of the high level of organized blue-collar labor. You had the Bradley Foundation and the uh, DeVos family and the Koch brothers' operations all involved in measures to pass laws detrimental to trade unions in those two states. So this goes way back. And it was an utter shock to the Democrats in 2016 when Hillary Clinton lost Wisconsin. But of course, this followed on the heels of these campaigns limiting the trade unions. So he's got a long record, as does Lisa Nelson and her organization, of these activities. Now, they're connected to efforts to promote the independent state legislature doctrine. If it is successful, you will have state legislatures, and you should keep in mind that 30 of our state legislatures are now controlled by Republicans. Mm. So this is the majority. Mm -hmm. And if this plan succeeds... Uh, and then these legislatures would pass legislation saying that if there is a challenge to election results, whether or not it is established through evidence, just a challenge, then the choice of the presidential elector, electors would go to the legislature. Oh, my. Wow. So if the Republican legislature gets to appoint its own electors, regardless of the popular vote in their state— you could have a de facto Republican in the White House, no matter how any of us voted. That's pretty scary. So, <laughs> yes. Um, and, and I was going to say that um, I wrote about uh, the role of the CNP in January 6th and the hydroxychloroquine COVID fraud in the Washington Spectator. Uh, my friend Jonathan Weiner wrote about the independent state legislature doctrine in the Washington Spectator. So your listeners can Google either one of us. Jonathan's name is W-I-N-E-R. And he really uh, he, he really published a very astute legal analysis of this threat. Wow. And Trump put his overturn the election eggs in, all into the Mike Pence basket and failed. There's a better strategy that you mentioned that Daniel Schultz has, which focuses on the precinct level. 
what are its goals and how would it achieve them? Yeah, I, I don't know that it's a strategy to achieve exactly the same end. But I will say that in general, Republicans tend to look at a kind of vertically integrated uh-huh. electoral system. Mm-hmm. And I would fault the Democrats for being very top focused. Yep. Right. Oh, yes. You know, it's all about the president. Yep. And so what what Schultz has done in, in Arizona is launch a project to purge the Republican Party at the precinct level of moderates ah. and of anyone who would work with Democrats on policy goals. Wow. So the idea is that, you know, who wants to, <laughs> who, who wants to be, you know, precinct chairman, right? Everybody's busy. They've got jobs. They've got kids. They've got things to do. And, you know, these, these positions are not like, they're like school boards. Uh, it really takes a sense of civic duty yes. to, to, to serve in these positions. So therefore, they're low-hanging fruit in many cases. So he has been organizing an effort to have Trump loyalists run as precinct chairman. And once you're in that, that position as precinct chairman, that brings with it other powers uh-huh. that varies state by state. And of course, you know, you've held office, so you know, you'd be familiar with this. Uh, but in some states, uh, the precinct chairman can promote uh, candidates in the primaries. They can also fill vacancies in the state legislatures. So in these kind of boring and not very glamorous local level jobs, if you fill enough of them with your activists, you can tilt that level of political life in your state even further to the right. And also, you you know, the other goal, I believe, is to eliminate people, Republicans of conscience, like Brad Raffensperger, from, from the picture. Mm-hmm. Now... If Trump's primary endorsements fade and he publicly loses his grip over the party, what happens to this machine then? Will the far right stop trying to undermine democracy? I would doubt it. <laughs> um, and as I said, they <laughs> they'll just move on to plans. You know, yes, yes. LMNOPQRTUV. So, 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 Mike Pence has been noted as a member of the Council for National Policy. Uh-huh. And in some ways, uh-huh. uh, he, is, he is their ideal uh-huh. because he is anodyne <laughs> and he would support a lot of the same policies that they got Trump to support, right. both the social and the economic policies. And uh, many people find him inoffensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that he has the a certain deficit in charisma, indeed, <laughs> but uh, but not compared to Ted Cruz. So um, that was one of his would be one of his rivals. Now, I would also suggest that your listeners look closely to to DeSantis in Florida. Yeah, I think he is somebody that they're promoting, and you can see him coming out with their policies on COVID and everything else. So they are so, not giving up. And there's the Josh Hawley uh, uh, culture war as well. So what can citizens do? The forces of autocracy very much want us to continue to believe we the people are powerless. 
they know that their side is not powerless, and we are not powerless. What can average voters do? Have too many given up and chose not to even try to get involved in their local Democratic Party? Yeah, I, I think that's that's been a problem because if there's anything I've I've observed over the course of my decades of work in these subjects, uh, democracy is a muscle and it atrophies if it's not flexed <laughs> routinely. Yeah. So I, I see a few problems. Uh, I think that a lot of people have assumed that American exceptionalism meant yeah. that, that they could be passive. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, it'll be okay. You know, we have this president, we have that president, it all works out. I believe that this movement is fundamentally anti-democratic. Oh, yeah. And when you have this soup to nuts approach from the precinct chairman all the way up to the president, uh, what they're trying to do is is consolidate their hold on power. And it is hard for me. Well, and they've done it in the courts as well. Yeah. So Trump's appointees to the federal courts were chosen from lists provided to him by three groups from the Council for National Policy, mm -hmm. the Federal Society, the Heritage Foundation, and the National Rifle Association, mm -hmm. as I document in my book. And what the NRA has to do with federal court appointments, I don't know, but there it is. So you have a situation where if the Congress is right. goes to the Republicans in November, uh, and then you have a Republican, whether it's Trump or one of the other contenders, elected either legitimately or less legitimately right. in 2024, and you have a continuation of the federal court appointments, you have a consolidation of the hold in power, certainly for the rest of my lifetime. Mm. Uh, and I would fear about the lifetimes of my children. Um, and, you know, you were talking at the beginning of the hour about democracy and allowing people to make choices. I'm not sure we actually get to choose policy so much, but one thing that we do have, or we have in the past, is the ability to, to do course corrections uh -huh. and to, to address mistakes. Um, and, and if you have this kind of consolidation on power that is reified by all three branches of our government, legislative, executive, and, and judiciary, there is no possibility of change, right? Power resides in the hands of a very few people. Economic policy resides in the hands of, of people who are very much in the 1% of the wealthiest Americans to the detriment of the other 99. Uh, you have social policies being set by people whose, mm. whose values are basically circa 1887. Mm -hmm. And you have the majority of our country uh, whose public opinion goes against all of these positions right. Right. without a means for expression or change. That's where I see the danger. So yes, uh, the only way out is if you have people who, who are working in defense of democracy, not, not Democrats, not Republicans, right. but democracy with a little D and yes. our ability to choose and to change. I like democracy a lot. I really do. And we actually chose the title of this show, Keeping Democracy Alive, before Trump got elected. Who knew? Well, Ann Nelson, if people are interested in following your work, is there anything on the uh, internet that you can uh, point people to? 
Sure. Um, the there besides the book and the articles in the New Republic and the Washington Spectator, mm-hmm. I update my research frequently on on Twitter as a Nelson A. Okay. A Nelsona. So um, that's. That's where That's people one say. way to find me. Well, we have our work cut out for us. That is for sure. It ain't easy. Thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, hopefully this is some tools we can pick up and use to uh, protect democracy. Thank you. We have a lot to defend. Thank you. Everything is now.